You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 4. And, uh, right chapter, yeah, Luke chapter 4. Uh, we have no version notes this morning. Uh, this is, is less going to be a point one two three sermon and more of, of, of a Bible study, for lack of a better phrase, as we talk about Luke 4. And I'll be reading some other verses that will appear up on the screen, but if, if I were you, I would just open to Luke 4 and stay there, because I will always get back there, I promise. That's where we'll end up. Uh, I have two versions of, of this sermon, I think, I was, I was studying. I think I've got like a microwave version and a crockpot version. And I'm not quite sure which one we're going to get. I promise you, if it's a crockpot version, we'll go two weeks on this, okay? I'm, I'm not going to, some of you are like, microwave, let's get with it. No. Um, I just, I'm not quite sure if we'll get through all this, and if we don't, that's okay. But we're going to talk about Jesus in ministry, and as part one, it happened to the best of us. It happened to the best of us. And this morning, like all things good, it starts with a story. Uh, there was a chicken and a pig talking to one another over the fence. This is not a true story, by the way. Um, chicken and a pig talking to one another over the fence, and the chicken says to the pig, you know, the farmer's been unbelievably good to us. And the, the pig agreed, yes, the farmer had been good to him. He goes, you know, he gives us fresh water, he gives us fresh bedding, a place to live, and the pig had to agree, it had been pretty great. And, uh, chicken said, we should share our appreciation with the farmer. Pig was up for that, hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, I guess we could share our appreciation with the farmer. He said, what do you have in mind? He goes, well, it's cooking breakfast. And uh, the pig said, well, what, what are you thinking of serving for breakfast? And the chicken said, well, he really likes eggs and bacon. Pig thinks a little bit and he goes, the level of sacrifice that this requires is not equal. Like it's gonna cost me more than it's gonna, let me explain. A chicken can lay an egg and survive, okay? Some of you are looking for deep, profound thoughts there. No, it's not that. They cost the pig everything. Which is why when people start talking to us about commitment that involving, involves us, we lean back a little bit. Because it's easy to say, let's serve the farmer eggs and bacon when you're the eggs and I'm the bacon. It's harder when we realize that that's what it's going to cost us. Don't you love it when people talk about what will cause a significant amount of commitment from you? Everybody sacrifices, but not everybody sacrifices equally. So when people talk about our sacrifice, we get our guard up. And this morning, I'm just telling you, I'm going to talk about your sacrifice. Understanding that some of you are going to feel like the pig in this story. But I want to talk to you about the call of God on your life. And I say that because there, if you follow that call, there will be sacrifices required. It's just the nature of it. And I don't do this without regard for what it means or without having paid a price myself. But when people talk about what we should do and we are included in the we, we get uncomfortable. My real goal here is not your comfort never has been. My real goal is that you feel understood and resonate with the scriptures. Because I think if you feel understood and you read this and you go, oh, this is me, you can deal with discomfort. I think, I think you're mature enough for that. 
this is what you understand innately, and we understand with you, is that Jesus is calling you. Now, he's calling you, yes, to be saved, but he's calling you to more than just himself to be saved. It's beyond just come unto me. It's come and partner with me. He is calling you alongside him in the plan of salvation, but also his plan to redeem the earth. And he's saying, let's work together. Paul described it this way. 1 Corinthians 3.9. Yes, I know I, told, I sent you to Luke. Just stay there. 1 Corinthians 3.9. For we are God's fellow workers. We are God's field and God's building. We work together with God to accomplish his purposes. We're not equals but he invites us to join with him. He does almost nothing without the help of believers by his choice. And it is our honor to give him that. If you haven't figured it out yet, you will give your strength to something. So those of you that are 20, 30, 40 years old, I'm telling you, you will give the best years of your life to something. You don't want to get to be my age and look back and say, I gave it to what? Give it to the king of the universe. The word there, 1 Corinthians, calls us God's field and God's building. God's field. What is, what is God's field? God's field is what he chooses to grow things in. He plants things deep within us. Then he does what all farmers do. He waits. Then he does what no farmers do. He causes it to rain. And if we nurture it, it grows. Things grow if they're tended to in God's field. And then he calls us God's building. Does God really need a building? Inhabits the cosmos. It's like what kind of building are we going to build in that he goes, oh, that's nice. He's not drawn to a building, but he calls us his building as a place to meet with him. Last summer, we talked a lot about the nature of God building us into a tabernacle of people. And at the loft now, we're beginning to spend time together and to tabernacle together. He's like, I want a building. I'm not even talking about a physical building, but he's saying, I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. So we can be his field and his building and his co-laborer. All it takes is to answer that call beyond salvation. Yes, I want to be saved, but Lord, I want to partner with you. I remember the first time feeling a call to ministry as a preteen. Was he young? I was not even a teenager yet. And I remember the pulling in my heart to serve the Lord beyond just showing up for salvation, but actually to work for him. And then I became a teenager. You know what a teenager changes religiously? Their mind. Right? Maybe socks twice a week. But their mind? Over and over and over and over again. And I remember as a young teenager, my, I, I could do this and I could do this and I could do this and I could do this. But I always kept coming back to that idea. But I will, and I knew I would serve the Lord in ministry of some way. Maybe not vocationally, but avocationally. You understand the difference? Your vocation is what you do for money to live indoors and eat food. All right? That's your vocation. Some of you own businesses. Some of you work in stores. Whatever. That's your vocation. Your avocation is what you would do for free. It's what you would do if there was no money on the line and you just wanted to do it. You can tell more about a person 
by their avocation than by their vocation. What they do out of the freedom of their own heart than what they do out of getting paid for. Now, I pastor, and I do receive a salary, but I'm telling you, there's a large element of this that you couldn't stop me from doing. It's just what, what's in me. It's, it's what I feel drawn to do. Serving the Lord is more than surrendering. People surrender all the time in war, but they don't switch sides. When you surrender to the Lord, suddenly he says, okay, we're working together, and now, guess what? You have entered the ministry. That phrase right there just caused about half of you to twitch. Anything but the ministry. You know, I'll do anything, but don't pull me into that. He's saying, no, come on, come on, come on. Because when you surrender to him, we switch sides. doesn't happen in war. There's all kinds of people we have captured as uh, prisoners of war that didn't switch sides. We just, they went to, you know, Guantanamo. They didn't swap sides. But when he captures your heart, you switch sides and now you work with him. And you work alongside your father and some people get hung up on that. They don't mind the idea of surrender, but they struggle with the idea of ministry because they put ministry in such an other category that they're not willing to go to. And they think it doesn't apply to me. It applies to you. 1 Peter 4, 7 to 10. There's this list of things that is, are written there that we can check off and kind of go, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. But it gets a little hairy at the end. It says, at the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Check. Yeah, I'm in for that. Sober-minded. Good. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, yeah, I'm down with that. Check. I'm with that. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You have to think about that one. But yeah, you'll land on that one. Okay. But then we get to the end. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Mm, I might not initial that line. Like, each one has a gift, and now I've got to serve other people. That sounds a lot like ministry. When he says there, as each has received a gift, you are a part of the each. Like, you're in that group. And if you're a part of the each that has a gift, and that gift is to serve one another as a good steward of what God has done in you, congratulations, you have entered the ministry. Now, it's less of an issue now, but uh, some of you remember when cell phones were an oddity, okay? Like, we didn't have, all of a sudden they sprung up, everybody had one. And um, you remember your first cell phone, those of you that are older, about the size of a Kleenex box, weighed eight pounds, you got 30 minutes per month, and then it cost you like $900. Remember that? And, and everybody that had a Nokia, you'd go to Best Buy, and you'd buy this button that would stick on the back of the phone. It would clip on your belt. The dumbest thing. We all look like gunslingers with our, our uh, phone clipped to our belt. Uh, so back in the day... How your phone rang was an important thing. In fact, for a while, you could actually, there was a ringtone store, and you could buy a ringtone to make your phone ring now a different sound or a different song or whatever you wanted. Now, it's like the greatest faux pas in the world if your phone makes a sound anywhere. But once in a while, we get a throwback. And, you know, you've been in a place where a phone rings, and there's kind of a, uh, a way of going about it it seems in church anyway, if your phone rings, the thing you do immediately is to act like it's not your phone. 
kind of look around. It's, like, it's your phone. It's ringing. Answer the phone or hang up. Do something, okay? I'm telling you, the call of God in your life is ringing. You cannot sit there and ignore it, and you can't shut it off. It's there. And that call is not to build the bridge and build some kind of organization. It is to extend the kingdom to your neighbors and to your friends and to your family. I want to see growth, yes. And I love that we're all crammed in here. This is fun, okay? But I want to see kingdom expansion more than congregation expansion. I don't want to just grow this so we need more volunteers so that we can do more of what we've been doing before with what we, you know, and we're just churning people. That's not what I'm looking for. I want to expand the kingdom. And I think actually you're hungrier for that than building a system. All those systems are good. You may fully engage with the call of God in your life or you might be ignoring the phone, but you do not have permission to set it to silent. It is ringing with opportunity. It's ringing with responsibility. It's ringing with fulfillment. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. On the other end of that call, God is drawing you, probably not as a vocation, probably as an avocation, that you will serve him out of the joy of your own heart and you will actually minister to others. Now, we can look to other people for how ministry should go, but at some point, they always disappoint you. I don't mean some people, I mean people. If they have a pulse, they're a disappointment waiting to happen. They might wait a while, okay? Quick show of hands. How many of you have ever been disappointed by a person? Prove my point. Okay, there. And by a person that you didn't think you'd be disappointed about because that's why it's called disappointment. Right? If it's not disappointment, it's expectation. I've expected it from some people. I've not expected it from others. But everybody at some point, you kind of go, wah, wah, wah. that didn't go the way I thought it would. Everybody. So if we're going to look at the pattern for ministry, we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to say, okay, nobody's achieved it, but that's what we're shooting at. Starting this series, Jesus in Ministry, part one, it happened to the best of us. We're going to look at Jesus' entry into ministry and how things went. And let me spoiler, it didn't go so well. I mean, it went well, so it didn't go well. And this is less of a sermon, more of a Bible study. Just stay there in Luke 4, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout the surrounding country. Now, let me give you a little context here. Remember, Luke gives details from a compiled, uh, a composite perspective. Matthew and Mark write these stories. This is what they saw. Luke didn't see it. Luke wasn't there. So he had to go get all the stories. And what we get out of Luke is often a more well-rounded story because it was the equivalent of sending 10 people into the concert with cell phones to record it. You could see everything. And that's kind of what Luke did. He sat them all down. He put the stories together. So we get this really well-rounded story of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he says that he enters into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, at this point, Jesus has had a couple of crazy days. Like, it's been, even by Jesus' standards, it's been pretty wild. He was baptized by his cousin, dove descends, voice of God speaks out from the clouds, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and then he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. 
This baptism effort here was a game changer, not just in the public eye, but in the timeline of Jesus' story. And Luke writes here, this is where Jesus begins his ministry. And his ministry begins, like so many people's ministry does, hard. It's just hard. He ends up going out. His first assignment from the Father is to go out into the wilderness and withstand temptation from the devil and refute the devil's efforts by using the word of God. So when it comes to the end here, Luke writes, verse 14, Jesus returned from the desert under the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country. Well, we read this, we go, well, of course he returned in power. He just spent 40 days kicking the devil in the head. You know, 40 days of fasting, 40 days of defeating Satan, he's in a groove. But what's interesting is, the same way he went into the desert. The same thing. Luke 4, 1 talks about him going into the desert. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Entering his ministry, Jesus encountered being led by the Spirit, going into testing or coming out of it. Holy Spirit's with him going both ways. He was under the control and the anointing of the Holy Spirit as he moved about in Galilee where these, all these great reports were being circulated about him, but he was under con- the control and power of the Holy Spirit when he was in the desert facing the devil himself. Jesus did great things even as the Son of God made note that the Holy Spirit was active within him in trials or in blessing. Quit gauging the effectiveness of a ministry by the acclaim it gathers rather than the Holy Spirit resting on it. Quit assuming that when somebody's getting eyes for their gifting that the Holy Spirit is near and then when things are hard, the Holy Spirit is lifted. Jesus started ministry 40 days in the desert. Testing, trials, hard, hungry, presence of the Holy Spirit right there. Some of you are in the desert right now. The Holy Spirit is as with you as he was before you realized, we're going to the desert. He's still there. And in fact, he wants to empower you to withstand that so when you come out of the desert, the people around you look and you go, you have been to war and back and you're still the same person. You're tender. You love Jesus. And the Holy Spirit never lifted in those times. Romans 8.14 says, All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. That's not something that Paul cooked up. That was something that Jesus had prophesied about those who would follow him. See, Paul's system goes, let me think, how do I think about this? Right? Jesus just speaks it out. And Jesus says in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's like, I, my Spirit will come on you and you will receive power. You're going to go everywhere with that. But the presence of the Holy Spirit will rest on you. He knew full well some of the people he was talking about would be martyred. He's like, you're going to go with the Holy Spirit. Where? To the end. But he's going to be with you at all time. That promise of the Holy Spirit was given to people who later healed the sick, saw salvation of thousands, survived beatings, survived shipwrecks, and Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will be with you through all of that, just like he was with me when I went into the desert or I walked into Galilee in great miracles. Quit looking at your life and saying, based on the current situation, it would appear the Spirit has lifted. No. 
Fine-tune your heart. He's there. So Jesus in this scene, though, is headed for the mountaintop experience. Just as he had preached through Galilee, word starts getting out. Reports were spreading everywhere. Do you remember Jesus? Remember John's cousin? Because everybody's somebody before they're who they are. You're like, remember John's cousin? Yeah, okay. Remember, remember that the baptism? Well, since then, Jesus' meetings have been even better than John's. Like, people are getting healed. We even have a, a, the closest thing we have to an early biblical Yelp review. In Luke 4, 15, it says, He taught in the synagogues being glorified by all. Now, most of us, when we think about Jesus' teaching, we think of him out in a rural area, on a hillside, that happened, holding a lamb for some reason. I have no idea why, but he's holding a lamb. He's just commonly talking in tones to 5,000 people. Lamb doesn't even freak out. It's amazing. But this is not that season for him. Galilee was heavily populated. Josephus was kind of the foremost first century uh, historian. Almost everything we know about biblical times of the first century comes from the Bible and Josephus, who was not a believer, but who wrote about the culture. And Josephus says that in that time in Galilee, we're thinking of Jesus holding the lamb. In Galilee, there were 240 cities of 10,000 people or more. It's not that big of an area. And it was well populated. Hit the next slide here. Right in this area, it was well populated even between the cities. There were so many people that in that region, they say there were about 3 million people. It was population-wise more dense, significantly more dense than Kansas City is right now. And yet, he was able to make an impact on this massive area and all of these people. Now, I'm from a small town. Like, really small. The south end of Velva, North Dakota, is Center Avenue, runs east and west. The north end of Velva, North Dakota, Fifth Avenue. Five blocks, one end to the other, okay? That's it. And in Velva, North Dakota, when I was growing up, you know, if Dilbert bought a pickup truck that was a weird shade of green on Saturday, by Monday, everybody knew it on the school bus. Like, it was just easy. The word got around. It, you, easy to make a big splash in a small town. He's in a city of, he's in a metro area of three million people. And his ministry is drawing attention. You can almost hear Jesus' followers thinking, you know, wow, Galilee. If we can make it here, we can make it anywhere. It's like, Galilee, Galilee. You know, it's like New York, New York. They're so excited. Because if we can make an impact of this big place, what can we do? And this entire next section of his ministry is considered his Galilean ministry. Let me just tell you a few things that happened in this season in Galilee. He heals an official's son, heals a paralytic, heals a leper, begins preaching the kingdom. Very sketchy thing to do in occupied territory. Like, this is a big deal. He's preaching about a new kingdom coming, and they're under the rule of the Romans. He calls his disciples, starts building his core team. He prays multiple times in solitary places. He heals on the Sabbath and stirs up the religious people. All of this happens in this season in Galilee. Plenty happens. I'm fairly confident that years later, the disciples sitting around the fire would go, remember that time in Galilee? Oh man, that was awesome. Like this was like some of the highlight of his ministry. There's just this one parenthetical section that contains some of the hardest 
of what it means to be in ministry. This is one little window. And it starts wonderfully and runs off the rails. Luke 4, 16 and 17. And he came to Nazareth. Now remember, Nazareth is his hometown. I can imagine him walking through Nazareth with the disciples. Yeah, we used to play on this corner. Yeah, that's where my dad's woodworking shop was. Yeah, we used to go down to, you know, pick up pizza here. He's telling them all the different things of what he did in that town. We came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This is not a place he walked in cold. This was like you going home for Thanksgiving in Minnesota and going to your mom's home church. All right? He, this was him going back to where he had been over and over and over again as a child. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Okay, stop for a minute. This seems a little bit mystical. So Jesus just wanders into town like the favored son has returned and walks up and gets a preaching gig. Like he just assumes he's supposed to speak. No, that's, that's not... A hush did not follow over the crowd. This was not an unusual thing. Every Sabbath, they would have seven readers. They would have a priest, they would have a Levite, and they would have five what we would call congregants or, you know, whatever, people who, in the community who would stand and read different. He was one of the five. He got through and like, Jesus, we're short. Can you read? Yeah, I'll read. So that's how that all is arranged. Now, was it ordained by God? Absolutely. But was it this take control of the moment thing? No. He's just there to serve. And he stands up, and he starts to read. Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I was reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, two points of interest about what he reads here. Something about what he didn't say, something about what he did say, all right? First, what he didn't say. That last phrase that he reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The very next line in Isaiah is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Isaiah writes it as one, you know, one idea. Jesus stops there. He broke himself off reading mid-sentence. Perhaps that's where the reading ended. It's unlikely because the thought doesn't end. But for whatever reason, he's accentuating this is the day of the Lord's favor. We are not yet to the day of the vengeance of our God. Make no mistake, both days are coming. Both are prophesied. We believe that both are coming. But he is saying in this moment, we're standing in a moment of grace and vengeance is not a part of that yet. If they understood how important it was that they were in a day of grace, but vengeance is coming, but wasn't there, how do you think they would have really responded? How do we respond? We're in the same boat. We're still in the day of the favor of our Lord and the day of vengeance where he broke off. We're not at that yet. So it's interesting what he doesn't say, but it's also interesting what he does say when it's all over. Verses 20 and 21. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture had been read a thousand times to these people. Some of them could mouth the words. They knew what they were. 
But nobody had ever said, this scripture is now fulfilled. Jesus, stopping short of vengeance, tells them, oh, by the way, this wasn't just read by me, this is about me. I'm not describing what will happen, I'm describing what I will do. I'm not reading the prophet, I am the prophecy. He said, I will proclaim good news to the poor. The poor of the earth have never had a whole lot of good news. In any culture, in any economy, in any government system, it's never been good to be poor. Even in good times, the good times are never very good to the poor. And Jesus said, I am coming with good news that will lift the plight of everyone, but will have special meaning to the poor of the earth because I will be their provision, I will be their caretaker. And in his ministry, he begins to use language that placed the poor not as distasteful people, but as people he would call out in a different way, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. There was something about these people who were poor that he was drawn to. And the poor of spirit are actually worse off than those who are poor of cash. And he is drawn to them. And he said that from this passage he reads, I will proclaim good news to them. There is something about being poor in your spirit that is devastating to you. Um, Jeff... Uh, is not with us this morning, and so I can tell this story because he would argue with me, but he's not here. Uh, one of the greatest movies of all time is A Wonderful Life. And uh, one of the pro most profound movements of A Wonderful Life is at the very beginning when they try and send the angel down to help him. And the conversation goes, there's a man on earth who needs our help, and Clarence says, splendid, is he sick? And the head angel says, no, it's worse. He's discouraged. He's beaten down. It's worse than sick. It's, it's being beaten. In one fell swoop, Jesus pledges his life to the discouraged and the poor of the earth, the ones who've been pushed aside. We look at the poor now. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out, well, how did they get poor? Like, what are the circumstances under which they find themselves? What life choices did they make? How could they have done that differently? Why are they afflicted the way they're afflicted? And the sub text to the question is, what did I do right that I'm not in that position? And we're really only a hair's breadth away from who sinned, them or their father. This is ministry, to proclaim good news to the poor. Not to interrogate them or second guess them, but to tell them what somebody told us, that we're worth something and that God loves us. It doesn't matter how they got into that situation. There is hope for them. And in our outreach to the poor, we've spent so much time trying to figure out, well, what are the underlying concerns and how could we... And that's all helpful, but if you don't have hope, a plan doesn't matter. You can spread hope with very little polish or perfection. We spent a good season of time connected with the vineyard in Cincinnati, which... Uh, did a ton of outreach to the poor and much of it unpolished like the rest of the Cincinnati Vineyard. It just was. And, uh, and, and the Lord blessed it. But there was this story in the origin of Cincinnati Vineyard how they started ministry to the poor. They were just a small group. They didn't have this many people yet. 
they would go on to 6,000, but they were small, and, and their small group were sitting around, and they were reading some of these passages, and one of them said, well, you know, maybe we should do outreach to the poor. And somebody else said, well, you mean now? Well, no, nobody means now. They mean later. But they decided, okay, let's do it. So they, they go to Kroger's, the grocery store there. They buy some groceries, and they think, well, poor need groceries. And somebody said, does anybody know any poor people? And, uh, I mean, it was that, that, that hokey. And somebody goes, well, I think I know where some live. It's like we're hunting squirrel, you know. I know where the squirrels live. And so they go to where the poor people live, and they go and they knock on a door with no thought of what they're going to say when they open the door. Zero training. Somebody opens the door, and my friend looks at him and goes, are you poor? <laughs> Seriously. I'm not saying do it this way, but just follow. The guy goes, actually, yeah. I don't have any groceries. They go, oh, we have groceries. The guy goes, come on in. I mean, it was just, <laughs> they walk in. And now you have to understand, it, you know, they've got broken people they're ministering to. There's broken people that are doing the ministry. Okay? Everybody's pretty busted. This idea that you've got to get it all together to minister to people is why you have not ministered to people. Okay? So they ask the guy, so what's going on in your life? He goes, it's terrible. I, I, I'm going through a divorce. And one of the guys who brought him groceries goes, me too. Really? Yeah. And he's trying to reconcile how the guy ministering to him was having a hard time. What are you going to do? Wait till we're perfect? And they start this ministry, and they have a, I mean, they massively impact the poor of Cincinnati. I'm reading this and pondering this. Man, the Lord is stirring my heart. I don't know what it looks like. I don't think I'm the guy to run it. But I would love for us to have an outreach to the poor. And I don't think we need to wait till we got all our ducks in a row to figure it out. In fact, I think if we wait for that, we'll never do it. It's stirring in my heart. Jesus says from the beginning the importance of the poor. He goes on, he says, I will proclaim liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. Now, captivity is something so foreign to us that it makes us a little bit nervous, okay? The idea of being captive, whether being, being tied or, or, or held captive, or even somebody else being captive freaks us out. A couple years ago, I was doing a, a smaller meeting, maybe, you know, 50 people around tables, and um, as we're talking, uh, we start hearing a beep. And it, it's not a phone. I can't figure out what it is. All of a sudden, I notice there's a guy at one of the tables, and he's messing with a yellow box strapped to his ankle. It's a, it's a monitoring device. And he's like, I got to go. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, go. It turns out the batteries were dying. He was allowed to be there. He just needed to get home and plug it back in. But that idea of, of being captive or... or, or incarcerated in there, it just kind of makes us a little bit nervous. That's a different world than we think we've ever related to. We don't have an understanding of what it means to be captive, or we don't think we do. We can imagine being poor. Some of you are like, I'm not imagining, I am poor. But it's hard for us to imagine being captive. I've got a dear friend of like 30 years who ended up with a 90-day sentence in a federal institution last year for something that he got sucked into. And uh, to this day, he goes, it was such a foreign experience that I, I, don't even, I can't even relate to it, and I went through it. It's different to us. This is where it's helpful for us to read more than one translation, because the original language is nuanced one direction, and our mind goes another. The ESV that we're reading says, liberty to the captives. New King James Version emphasizes the idea of to heal the brokenhearted. 
The combination of those two understandings, setting the captive free and healing the brokenhearted, actually serves better clarity for this passage because many people are held captive by their own broken hearts. And when he says, I'm going to heal the brokenhearted and set the captive free, he's talking about the same thing. Jesus knew through Nazareth, through Galilee, to the ends of the earth, everywhere they would go, they would find brokenhearted people. He says, you may even come to a city where you don't find poor people. You'll find brokenhearted people. You'll find captive people. And as he's reading this, it's reminded to him that this is something that God has always been about. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Jesus is saying in this passage in Isaiah, this is the work I'm coming to do, set people free from their broken hearts. The idea to ministry to the poor may not be one that you're confronted with on a, on a regular basis, but I promise you, you've interacted with somebody who was brokenhearted today. Maybe in your row maybe in your seat because brokenheartedness is one of the most universal experiences in the world how do we exp explain this plethora of brokenheartedness being brokenhearted is about when we have certain expectations of people and we become invested in those expectations and then those expectations aren't met and it comes from loving and believing the best and then being proven wrong we can't move forward because we had expectations forward, so we can't go forward, and we're kind of stuck, and we can't go back. And we're captive in that moment, in that setting of, of being brokenhearted. Kansas City is full of people who are captive to shattered expectations. Full of people who thought one thing was going to happen, and it didn't. And now they're stuck. We can't go the way we were going. We don't want to go back. Here we are. Kansas City has never been more ripe for the ministry of Jesus and his disciples to set captives free and bind up the brokenhearted. The primary message to the church of Kansas City right now is you do not have to be stuck. The future is forward and Jesus is with you. And not only is Jesus with you, but people who are trying to be like Jesus as best we can are with you as well. He goes on to say, reading out of Isaiah, set at liberty those oppressed and, those, and declare the favor of the Lord. And then you remember what happens. He sits down and he tells them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And something in the next few verses, very visceral happens. Like it's like, oh my goodness. It's not just that they're shocked, they're moved by this. And the next two sentences, there is a subtle but cosmic shift as the room tilts one way and then quickly tilts the other. Luke 4, 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. What did he say? He is doing these things? We heard of what he did in, in the other places. And now he's saying he's the fulfillment of Isaiah. The whole room tilts and then it goes back the other way because they say, is this not Joseph's son? Like, wait a minute. Yeah, we, we've heard about the miracles and he read the verse real nice. And that was nice, but we remember him in junior high. It is hard to imagine anybody you know in junior high being the son of God. Like, that's a jump. And suddenly, 
What Jesus is saying in one sentence of verse 21, the scriptures fulfilled your hearing, it causes them to marvel. And in the very next sentence illustrates the room and the temperature has dropped like 10 degrees. You're Joseph's boy. We remember things about that whole thing. Didn't they have to get married? What's the story there? They don't complete the thought, but if you follow the train of the passage, what they're really saying is, how marvelous are these words he's sharing? Wait a minute. Who does he think he is? There is a quirk of ministry, Jesus' ministry, your ministry, that can take a person most motivated to encourage you and be encouraged and receive ministry from you, and in a moment they can turn. And suddenly, they are not open. One of the great wisdom pieces that I picked up in Bible college, I remember a, a professor saying one time, if you are candidating at a church, you're like, you know, the hired gun there, you're flying in to see if you're going to be the pastor, you don't know any of these people, they pick you up at the airport. He says, whoever picks you up at the airport is probably the guy that you need to watch because later on he's going to try and get rid of you. That is weirdly true. Because people can pivot in a second. They did it to Jesus. In Luke 24, 23 and 24, he answers this. He says to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What is he talking about? Physician, heal. Some of you are like skimming through Proverbs. It's not in Proverbs. Okay, it's, It was a colloquialism. It's a, a local thing they would say. And what it meant was, show us the receipts. If you are who you say you are, show us. Do a trick, Miracle Max. Like, let's see you do something. We've heard of what was going on in Galilee. All you've done here is claim to be the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. What can you do for us? You know how we always say that Jesus has experienced the full extent of what it means to be human? This is what's going on here. In his hometown synagogue, they are not satisfied with who he is. They want to know what he can do for them. Some of you have been hurt in ministry because people were more involved with what you could do for them than who you are. Jesus felt it. He's like, I just got home. I, I just, I didn't see my mom yet. Like, I'm I just here for a minute. I just, is it good enough to be near me or do I need to do a trick for you? And some of you are wounded because you ministered to people joyfully, but later you realized it was not enough for them to just you be near because the value they had for you was what you could do for them. And it stings. And you feel used and a little abused and a little bit beat up. It happened to the best of us. Jesus understands what it's like for people to not be hungry enough to be near him without him doing something for them. Remember we talked about Jesus as an example for ministry that we're called to. And he embodies ministry he struggles with. Like he just from the very beginning he's very honest. This is how it goes. I, I fasted and I, you know, I beat the devil and then I went to my hometown and got whacked in the head by people who were not satisfied with my presence but were hungry for miracles. That's why later in this chapter, and again in chapter 5, Jesus withdrew 
to solitary places. He realized, I will never recharge with the people I'm ministering to. I gotta pull away. If I don't hear from my father, I'll never be able to withstand all of these people drawing on me. Luke 5, 16 says, he would withdraw to desolate places. Desolate places, that's like the place where he was tempted. He said, I would, I would rather face the trauma of going back to the place where I was tempted and commune with the Father than to expect these, these people I'm ministering to to recharge me. They're not going to do it. Here's how it lands. Luke 4, 29 30. They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill of which their town was built so they could throw him off the cliff. This was very nearly a very short story. Okay? Like, he's just getting involved in ministry. Here, Jesus, stand here. No, I don't want to stand there. Like, why? You're getting ready to throw me off the cliff. Pose here for a picture. But passing through their midst, he went away. We don't, we don't really know what that means. Somehow, you know, everybody's got evolved theories of what happened. But somehow he slips through the crowd and he lives to minister another day. Those of you who at the beginning of this talk, as I was talking about the call to ministry and how it's to, to serve and use the gift, and you're going, oh, man, that's, uh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, maybe there's something more than just selling widgets at the widget factory. Maybe there, you know, there's an avocation that I can give my life to are now at this part going, you know, widgets, not so bad. Keep my head down, make the widgets. Why does ministry have to be hard? Because it involves people. And it's always going to be hard. But it, it's not just hard, it's worth it. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't sit around Nazareth going, you clowns have hurt my feelings. It's going to take six years of counseling to straighten out. And in the meantime, I can't do anything. I'm going to have to pull back. Now we press forward. Because as we press forward in ministry, even through pain, God does beautiful things. So some of you this morning, when, when I hit that, you feel used, it's like, was that targeted? No, it's just true. Sometimes truth hits. And some of you have felt used. He is saying to you, press in. Don't, don't give up on your calling. Press in. Close with a story I read this week of, uh, it's so funny, I come up with things I've never, ever heard before, and I send them to people who think I'd, I'd be interested, and they know the whole story. I sent this to Daniel Grenz. He's like, he knew the whole thing. Eh, anyway, so this missionary, Judson, last name was Judson, went to Burma, was one of the first, if not the first, missionaries sent from the United States, and endured an incredible lifetime of pain. Married three times, first two wives died either in childbirth or from malaria. One wife he had seven children with, only five survived to adulthood. Great pain. He dies as his third wife is giving birth to their child who dies. Like I'm reading this story late one night. This QR code will take you to the, to the to little booklet that I, that I downloaded. And as I'm reading this story, Kelsey's working on something else, and I'm just like fascinated. I keep interrupting her, and this happens, and the whole story is just so heavy. 
But later, his grandson says this, because this guy goes on to write the Burmese dictionary, to write the Bible in Burmese. Like, he just opens Burma for the gospel. And his grandson later says, if we succeed without suffering, it is because others have suffered before us. If we suffer without success, is it is it so other may succeed after us. So if you're in a painful spot right now, what you're going through may be laying the groundwork for your children or others to be incredibly impactful in ministry. Or if you're finding yourself in a season of an impact, just know that somebody paid the way for you to be there. Pain, struggle, hurt, it's all baked into what we're saying yes to. But so is glory and fulfillment and one day seeing Jesus face to face. It's worth the price you're paying. It's worth the price you're paying. Stand with me if you would. The question is who says yes to this? Like, once you're late, it's all laid out and you know it's hard and you know it's going to be painful. You have to decide, do I want this or do I not want this? And the Lord gives you the dignity to choose. He doesn't want robots. He wants co-laborers. But a yes to that is costly and rewarding. Holy Spirit, we ask you to just come. As we ponder for a moment. The call of God in our lives. Father, some of us have answered that. Many of us have answered that. You have built a body here of people that go to and fro across the earth and minister. So many, many, many have said yes. And also many, many, many right now are hurting and struggling. Because they've discovered that, man, wow, people hurt to those that are bruised and beaten I ask that you would minister to them you would encourage their hearts